Week one of the college basketball season is in the books, which can only mean one thing. It is Gavit Games Week, baby. Big East, Big Ten, four nights, eight games. We are in for a treat. And joining me now to talk about all of that, he is a writer for the Big Big East blog, and you can check out his complete Gavit Games preview on that blog. One and only Patrick Batten. Patrick, thanks for joining me today. Oh, thank you, Tim. It's a privilege to be on a on a podcast. Which so far I've listened to most of your most of your sessions, and your podcast is excellent. So thanks for the thanks for the chance to talk about this. Well, thank you for the praise. So let's get right into it tonight. DePaul, Iowa, will kick it all off. Eight Eastern on FS1. Iowa is favored to win this game by nine and a half. So if you're looking to bet tonight, which I be a very weird game to bet on uh place your bets accordingly on that um so let's talk about DePaul they played three games in four nights to start the season last week they won all three Dave Lato was suspended for those three games so he'll be back for this game at Iowa so a couple things number one I definitely want to know from what you're thinking how the return of Dave Lato is going to affect this team tonight and then also uh, what were your biggest takeaways from DePaul's first three games, and who's who? Who are you really pegging to be the star to watch for tonight with the Blue Demons? All right, let me start by reviewing the three games, uh, the three games in four days, which I think put more of a physical toll on DePaul than people are going to let on here. Uh, particularly if you watched any of their game with FDU on Friday night, it, it FDU hung in that game until the closing minutes. Uh, their star was Charlie Moore, the transfer from Kansas. Moore provides a dimension for DePaul that they have not had in a while, which is a point guard who can not only score, but a point guard who can run the offense and can distribute the ball to other players on the team, which is going to be important for DePaul this season because DePaul has two elite talents in their front court. One is somebody who's very familiar to Seton Hall fans, their power forward, Paul Reed, 6'9". He had two big games against Seton Hall last season in DePaul's two victories against us. And the other one's a freshman, Romeo Weems, 6'7 guy from, uh, from, Michigan, from the state of Michigan. Weems is a guy who can score inside, he can score outside, he can slash the ball. And Weems is a guy who, is, who basically is the best recruit that Lato's ever had at DePaul. So in theory, Romeo Weems is a guy who, who you should keep an eye on. I don't know how it translates to tonight's game in particular. Uh, because the, Iowa has a lot of depth and a lot of length in their front court. Uh, they have guys like Luke Garza, who is very big in their opening two matchups. Uh, they, have a, they have a player like Joel Weiskamp, who can provide some difficulty. And, of course, their point guard is Jordan Bahannon. Bahannon was one of the best players in the Big Ten his first three seasons, but he's coming off injuries. So the question becomes how much is Iowa going to put Bohannon on the court tonight, particularly since this is a non-conference game, even though it is against a power five opponent or a power conference opponent. And even though it's a home game for Iowa. Now, I think the biggest thing with DePaul is uh, Paul Reed kind of struggled a little bit in a couple of those three games. I think he only had five points against Chicago so I, I think his performance is going to be really indicative about really indicative towards how they're going to perform tonight. I mean, this is going to be a really tough environment to play in 
uh, for this DePaul team. And another thing I like to point out, Connor McCaffrey, I mean, he had some glimpses last year where he looked really good, particularly in that thriller that they played against Tennessee in the tournament a season ago. And a little bit of a fun fact for for anyone listening out there, Chris, uh, he also plays baseball. And he actually played a couple of summer ball games near me. He actually played for a team called the Albany Dutchman, um, about an hour and a half east from where I live. And they actually play in the league that the team I work for, the Utica Blue Sox, plays in. So a little bit of a fun fact for you. But um, overall, I think Paul Reed has got to step up big time in this game. I think he's got to put forth a double-double if DePaul wants to stand a fighting chance. Yeah, I think he's got to – I mean, look, I mean, DePaul's going to rely heavily upon its stars, obviously. I think Moore is a much bigger factor because Moore is the one guy who should – except against Bohannon, Moore is the one guy who should have an advantage over a player like Connor. Nothing against McCaffrey, of course, but I I don't know if – talent-wise, I don't know if McCaffrey's in the same league as Charlie Moore. The thing about right. the, thing, the advantage Iowa's got is that Iowa's got better and bigger weapons in their front court, uh, which they can use, and they have more depth and they have more experience than what the Paul's going to be putting on the court tonight. Uh, you know, in the home court, the home court should be a factor in Iowa's favor. I don't know what type of crowd they're going to get, uh, but it's it, but it's going to be a heavily, you know, obviously it's going to be a heavily pro-Iowa crowd. The one thing to think about is look what Seton Hall did in the Gabbitt games a few years ago going into Iowa for Miles Powell's breakout party. Powell had 26. I think it was a second or third game at Seton Hall. In a game, Seton Hall went out to Iowa where nobody thought they had a chance of winning, and Seton Hall managed to pull a big upset, propelling us into the 27 NCAA tournament. So the question is, it's not as if Iowa can't be beat in this game. It's just that all the factors on paper seem to point to a tidy Iowa victory tonight. I mean, I have a I have a similar viewpoint to that. I do have Iowa winning. I think it's going to be a double digit victory, but it definitely will not be a blowout. I think Iowa secures it. You know, let's just say let's just say thirteen points will be the margin tonight. That sounds about right. So, moving into tomorrow night's doubleheader on FS1 starts at six thirty with Creighton against Michigan. Now, Creighton got four votes in the poll to start the season, but. In the latest AP poll that was released earlier today, only one vote. And I think that partially is a result of what happened on Tuesday night in their opener against Kennesaw State. They were only up eight at the half, were able to pull away. But there were a lot of negative signs uh, in that game uh, for the Blue Jays. The one being the, the lack of size definitely showed. And also... Mitch Ballack, who's supposed to be the number two guy to Tyshawn Alexander this year at Creighton, he only had four points in the victory. And at least in my opinion, if Mitch Ballack doesn't show that he could be the Robin to Alexander's Batman, I, I don't think there's any way that Creighton can win this game in Ed Harper. It's going to be a tough spot to put Creighton in because Creighton's got a couple of injuries that they're dealing with. You talk about Ballack. Ballack's in a difficult spot because uh, Doug McDermott is asking Ballack to play bigger than Ballack's six foot seven size. He's going to have him play either power forward or the center position. And Ballack is more designed to be a small forward shooting guard type guy because of the loss of their center, Jacob Epperson. 
So already Ballard's being asked to do some things in terms of the rebounding and in terms of playing inside that Ballard's probably not big enough or has the skill set in order to do. One other name that that's important to this game that's missing is also their senior guard, Davian Mintz. Uh, Mintz is a guy who's got a lot of experience. Mintz is also very good defensively. Uh, now you replace him with a guy like a Marcus Zagorowski, and Zagorowski is an explosive offensive guy. Zagorowski had a very good shooting game against Kennesaw State. The times we saw Zagorowski play last year, Zagorowski was tough to deal with because Zagorowski is fast. Zagorowski's good at getting the ball to people like Tyshawn Alexander, and Zagorowski can shoot the ball. The one issue you have when you play Zagorowski, though, is that Zagorowski's only 5'11", so that bigger guards uh, can probably have their way with a guy like Zagorowski, and that's something to keep in mind when they're playing Michigan tomorrow night. Michigan's got some, Michigan's got some size, and Michigan's got some experience. You look at a guy like John Teske, the big guy who's coming back, from their team last year. You look at guys like Isaiah Livers and Xavier Simpson, who are also part of that front court. And that front court, that length and that size and that experience is going to be difficult for an undersized team like Creighton to deal with, particularly since the game's up at Ann Arbor. So I think the biggest thing, I think Michigan's got a real legitimate three-headed monster coming back with Isaiah Livers, Xavier Simpson, and John Teske. I mean, between point guard, swingman, and center, that is a lethal combination. Now, I know Michigan, I mean, they lost a lot from that team that was a two-seed in the tournament a year ago, but they're still a really solid team. But now the question is, how is Juwan Howard going to take this team into their first legitimate test after barely surviving a game against Appalachian State last week where a lot of people were getting that 2007 football upset vibe. <laughs> yep, remember that one. Yeah, the, the, thing about, the thing about Howard is that Howard has no experience coaching on the college level. He's never been a head coach before. Uh, he's in the same boat as sort of like a Penny Hardaway down in Memphis, where they're bringing him in because he's a big former star. They're bringing him in because they expect him to bring, bring big recruits. They're hoping Howard... Uh, recruits the equivalent of the team Howard was on at Michigan 30 years ago, the Fab Five. Uh, and he got a slow start recruiting because John Beeline, who went off to the NBA, he, 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 he quit the Michigan job sort of late in, the, sort of in June. So it was late in the game for, for Howard to get the ball running in terms of recruiting and in terms of learning who the guys were on his team. So there's going to be a bit of a learning curve for Howard in as much as it's his first head coaching job his first time at college, and his first time dealing with his roster. That being said, I think that the difference between the talent and the size between the two teams. Now, if Creighton had been at full strength, this would be a very tough game for Michigan because, you know, Creighton's, Creighton at full strength would have been the most explosive team in the Big East. They would have put a lot of points up on the board, and it would have been something where Michigan would have had a very big task of holding them down defensively. Now that you're asking guys like Mitch Ballack and guys like Christian Bishop to be the, the main guys on the front court against a guy like John Teske and a guy like uh, Xavier Simpson, that's a, tough, that's a tough ask for a couple of those Creighton guys in order to match up size-wise against the Michigan team. So I think the biggest thing with Creighton 
they only have one, I call it legitimate big man, where you know he's going to be locked down in the post. And that guy is Kelvin Jones, the grad transfer. I think he had a pretty solid game off the bench against Kennesaw State. Now, I think the biggest thing with him is he's got to show his experience and his strength down low. He's got to be able to somehow just match Teske pound for pound, limit him, limit Teske scoring both inside and out, because Teske can't step out and hit a three from time to time. So I think Kelvin Jones is the guy that I'm looking forward to to seeing if he can step to the plate and give Creighton a boost in this game to possibly go on the road and win a tough game. But in the end, I just don't see it. I think Michigan's going to find a way to win and uh, improve to 2-0. Creighton will fall to 1-1. and So um, I'm interested to see what you have to say about what the game result's going to be. Yeah, I think it's unfortunately for Creighton, again, at full strength, they're, giving, they're taking Michigan down to the wire. I think with the injuries with Epperson and Mintz, I think they're just going to come up a little bit. They're going to come up a little bit short against, and the home court advantage is going to be a big factor for Michigan as well. That crowd's going to be fired up, particularly because it's always a loud crowd anyway, but now they know this is their first big test under Juwan Howard, and people in Michigan are fired up about it. I think Michigan probably wins by enough to cover whatever the spread ends up being in that game tomorrow night. All right, and again, that'll be a 6.30 Eastern on FS1 from uh, Chrysler Arena. And then rounding out that doubleheader, 8.30, going to head a little bit south to Hinkle Fieldhouse in Indianapolis, Minnesota, and Butler. Two completely different circumstances surrounding these teams. Minnesota, they lost a lot from a tournament team that made it to the round of 32 last year. Butler did not perform up to expectations a year ago. I really thought they were going to be a top three team in the biggies led by Kamar Baldwin. It just didn't pan out that way. And early on, they had to deal with a lot. Derek Smith is hurt in the opening game on Wednesday against IUPUI. He came back off the bench on Saturday. Jordan Tucker was suspended for a game, and I touched on in the last episode. And it was just so – the reason for it was just so stupid. It wasn't even – it's just a laughing stock. I'm, I'm not going to go any further on that. That's all I can say as much as I want to say. Like, I'm just going to bite my tongue for the rest of that. But Tucker came back, had a 16-point outing against New Orleans. And at least in my opinion, I really think that Butler, to get themselves some momentum moving forward into the rest of the non-conference, I really think that a win tonight will do – so much for them. I think they can pull it off tonight, but what's going to be the biggest thing for the Bulldogs that's going to take them over the top? Well, the question is how, how much, how much can Kamar Baldwin play and how effective can Baldwin be? Uh, The one thing that came up from the IUPUI game was how well their senior forward, Sean McDermott played. McDermott had 26 points shot lights out in that game. And that's the one thing that McDermott has the potential to do. McDermott can put a lot of points up on the board if he's got his, if he's got his jumper in line. I, I think he only had 12 points in their, uh, in their game against New Orleans the other night. But Tucker, I think, had 13 points playing his first game of the season. So Butler, ha- the one thing Butler has to do all season anyway is be able to develop some more weapons so they can keep defenses honest against to, to keep defenses honest, to allow Kamar Baldwin to, to operate. Uh, if Baldwin is 100%, I don't see anybody on Minnesota's team who can hold him down. Uh, the question becomes, if Baldwin's not 100%, 
uh, that might allow Mich- that allow might allow a team like Minnesota to hang around a little bit. Uh, Minnesota's Minnesota's gotten some pretty good performances from Marcus Carr. Uh, he had 19 points in their loss to Oklahoma at home the other night. Uh, so it's not like Minnesota's a te- it's not like the coverage entirely bare for Richard Pitino up there in Minnesota. The problem is that I don't think they have the backcourt pieces to keep up with a Butler team that's got such a tremendously experienced backcourt and has got a backcourt that can be so explosive and put a lot of points on the board. And another important piece uh, for that Butler team is the Milwaukee transfer, Bryce Enzi, no relation to Michael. Um, So he had a double-double last time out with 18 points and 11 rebounds, I'm pretty sure. I I think he is going to also play a big role in uh, in Tuesday night's game. So all in all, um, I think it's going to be a one-possession game in favor of the Bulldogs. What do you say about that? Uh, I think Butler probably wins by a little more than that. Uh, Minnesota has not looked good in the in the first week of the season. Minnesota's got to wa- let work a lot of things out with some inexperienced players. It's going to take them a while to get their act together, whereas you hinted upon it earlier. Butler's an experienced team. Baldwin's a senior. McDermott's a senior. Uh, the, Henry Baddeley, who was also hurt early in the season, he's their, he's their leading big man. He's also a senior. So you've got the experience of Butler, their explosiveness in the backcourt, as well as the home court advantage. Hankel's a tough place to play at, particularly for teams that don't play at Hankel very often. So that's something which uh, an inexperienced and younger Minnesota team may have a hard time with. Uh, I don't know what the spread's going to end up being, but uh, I'd like, I think Butler's going to win by two or three possessions. All righty. So in terms of the quantity of games, Wednesday night's going to be the biggest one. And the doubleheader starts off with arguably the second biggest game of these Gavit games. And that is number 10 Villanova at number 16, Ohio state. That'll be on FS one seven o'clock in Columbus. Now, this Villanova team, again, they've only played one game. Ohio State now has two games under their belt. So I'm really intrigued to see what the extended period off is going to do to Villanova, especially with some of their younger guys, mainly Jeremiah Robinson Earl. So, I mean, I expect Villanova is going to be the favorite in that game, but I'm telling you this is not going to be an easy game whatsoever for Nova. Well, I think it actually does help Villanova, and I'll tell you why. Uh, Colin, Colin Gillespie suffered a broken nose during uh, the preseason for Villanova, and he had to play their opening game against Army with a face mask, and he did not play particularly well. I think he shot two for nine from three with that game, and Gillespie's an important piece for this Villanova team because he's not only the starting point guard, but they're going to expect some scoring from Gillespie. Robinson Earl, I mean, I hate, if you watch any of the highlights or any of that Villanova game, now they are playing Army, of course. Robinson Earl is a beast. Robinson Earl is going to be a force to be reckoned with, not only for Ohio State tomorrow night, but for Big East teams going forward. Uh, he's he scored 24 points, had 13 rebounds. He can he can rebound inside, he can score inside, but then he can also step out and shoot the three-pointer. So uh, in terms of that for Villanova, plus it gives them some time to practice, and it gives Jay Wright a whole week to prepare for an opponent like Ohio State. And you give Jay Wright that much 
time to prepare for an opponent like that. And he's going to have some things. He's going to have some plays and he's going to have some things in the work to try to contain that Ohio State team. Now, obviously, the biggest piece of that Ohio State team that I think they absolutely have to contain in order to win that game, and I believe it's going to be Jeremiah Robinson Earl is going to have that assignment of guarding him. It's really raw talent against experience with Robinson Earl against Jacob Wesson. How are you viewing that matchup? It's a very interesting matchup between Wesson and Robinson Earl because, you know, Wesson is an all-Big Ten guy. Wesson's... Wesson's got the experience, uh, and you know, and, what, and of course, Ohio State's at home. I don't know how that factors into it, but in terms of that, you've got a guy like Wesson who may try to prove a point against a guy so hyped up like Robinson Earl. The question becomes, how do the supporting pieces work uh, for both teams? Uh, you know, Villanova, of course, has Gillespie. They have Sadiq Bay. They have Jermaine Samuels. They have uh, they have some pretty good scoring coming off their bench. Uh, I think Justin Moore played a pretty Justin Moore played pretty well for a freshman uh, in the backcourt for Gillespie the other night. So the thing about Villanova is that Villanova has some depth in that game, and they have some they have more depth that can score in that game than Ohio State does. The thing Ohio State's going to have to do in that game is that Ohio State's going to have to slow the game down. Ohio State's going to have to make it a possession to possession type game, uh, and and. You know, Ohio State's going to have to play some pretty good defense. Not that a team coached by Chris Holtman's not capable of that, by the way. But the idea here is that if it's a matter of if talent wins out tomorrow night or Wednesday night, Villanova's got a pretty big edge in that game. If experience and a good scheme by Chris Holtman uh, can come together for Ohio State, they could give Villanova some trouble. And something to point out, the last year that Chris Holtman was at Butler, he swept Jay Wright. i just like to point that out. Yep, I had that on the blog. I was thinking, what's, what's the matchup? Now, Wright, once, Wright was 4-2 and two against Holtman when Holtman was at Butler, but as you pointed out, he won the last two games. And none of those games, I think, between those two teams was particularly easy. So at that point, both coaches know each other. Both coaches know their tendencies. Both coaches know their strategy, so it's going to be interesting to see what type of chess match, depending on you know what you know how close the game, which should be a close game. So it's going to be interesting to see what type of adjustments each coach makes, because again, you got two teams that are sort of trying to figure themselves out early in the season, and there's only so much tape each team has on the other one. So it's going to be something where in-game adjustments could be very important, and the question is who between Holtman and Wright makes the better in-game adjustments for the two teams. I mean, I think this is by far the toughest game to pick out of this entire eight-game slate. You, you, can really flip a, you can really flip a coin, and even then you'll still be unsure about who to pick. If I were, if I were to make a pick, I mean, I would go with Ohio State. Like, it's just a very, very slight edge with Wesson and his experience down low that's going to give him – the edge that they need in order to win this game. I actually go the other way on that. I think that guys, when you're looking at the type of scoring that Sadiq Bay can put up, the scoring that Samuels can put up and even whatever, and, and Robinson Earl, I think that there's a little bit too much talent. I know that I, I it's going to be interesting what type of crowd shows up for Ohio state on Wednesday night. Uh, they're in the middle of a very exciting football season, as you know. So the question is how pumped up, 
are the Ohio State fans going to be in Columbus on Wednesday night? I mean, you you would think normally when you bring in a team that's won national championships and a team in the top 10 against you and almost any other fan base in America is going to be really fired up about that. Is the Ohio State crowd going to be very fired up about it given they're in the middle of a football season right now? So if home court was going to be a bigger advantage, I'd be with you picking Ohio State. But I think this is the type of thing where Jay Wright's been in hostile environments before. Colin Gillespie's been in hostile environments before. Jermaine Samuels played really well in some of the later games last season for Villanova. So I think in that sense, their scoring, their coaching, and the experience they have in the past of winning games like that leads me to believe Villanova is going to find a way to pull this one out. And another piece that we can't really ignore here, Cole Swider, the projected sixth man of the year in the Big East, he had 18 points against Army. If he can have another game like that against Ohio State, then that'll definitely give Villanova the edge in that matchup. So let's move forward into the second game of that Wednesday night slate that is on FS1. Villanova, Ohio State's at 7 o'clock that night. And then the 9 o'clock game, and, and for I don't I can't believe they scheduled this for the second time in three years. Purdue and Marquette at the Pfizer Forum. Purdue was upset at home by Texas on Saturday night. Marquette they crushed Loyola Maryland in their opener, and Marcus Howard in that game became Marquette's all-time leading scorer. So got a lot of interesting factors. Obviously, you have the star power with Marcus Howard. And with Purdue not being ranked anymore, this is going to be a really interesting matchup because two years ago when Purdue was really, really good, they beat Marquette um, at the old BOMO Harris-Bradley Center. But now, two years later, completely different. Marcus Howard is now a senior. Carson Edwards isn't at Purdue anymore. So, I mean, if we're looking at this on paper, you kind of lean towards Marquette. I, I think so. I mean – it was weird when I first put my first prediction had Marquette win, Purdue winning. And the reason was because I thought that their size of a guy like Matt Harms and a guy like Trevin Williams, I thought their size would be a bigger factor in this game. But then you fast forward to watching their game against Texas the other night. And the thing about it was that Texas got whatever scoring they want in the backcourt. I think they had a point guard named uh, Matt Williams, who put up 22 points against Purdue. Now, the thing is, I don't know how good or bad this Williams guy is, but you think Marcus Howard must have been watching the tape of that game and having his mouth water with how limited the Purdue defense looked to be against a strong backcourt. If you think about what a team like Texas can do against Purdue. Now, Purdue's, uh, Purdue's point guard is a guy named no- Noel Eastern. Eastern uh, Eastern's an experienced guy. The problem is Eastern hurt his hand in Purdue's opening game. So we're not entirely sure he's 100% for this one. And if he's not 100% and he can't provide some type of defense against Marcus Howard and Marcus Howard goes off for something like 30, 35 points, Purdue's going to be in a lot of trouble in this game. I totally agree. I mean, my initial prediction was I, I had Purdue, but now I'm not leaning that way anymore. And I think the biggest thing with Marquette, and it's going to be a question mark all season long, it's got to be the supporting cast between the rest of the starting five, as well as the bench guys like Greg Elliott, Jamal Kane, 
Uh, I'm pretty sure Jace Johnson is going to be out for this matchup, though. But look to I'm looking for guys like Kobe McEwen, Sakar Annam, and Brendan Bailey to really put forth a bit, uh, put together a big performance as a unit. You know, putting points on the board to support Marcus Howard, and then down low, I can't emphasize this enough. Theo John, he's I believe he's four inches shorter than Matt Harms. He absolutely has to man up and actually, you know, limit Matt Harms and, you know, be the, even though size-wise he can't be, be the bigger man in that matchup. Well, I mean, from what we saw from Theo John last year, Theo John is a tough player. Theo John uh, is as physical as anybody we saw in the Big East last year. So the idea here is if he if he basically gets very physical, and that it depends, of course, on how much the reps let him, but if Theo John's allowed to be physical and can put Matt Harms in uncomfortable positions down low, that's going to negate one advantage you would think that Purdue would have because Harms normally is such an elite player. He's an elite scorer. He can jump out from three on the occasion. But if Theo John's beating him up for 40 minutes, how effective is Harms really going to be in a game like this, particularly if Noel Eastern's not 100%? Uh, McEwen had a pretty good game against Loyola. I think he had 11 points. Uh, I, mm-hmm. don't know, I don't know if Nim was particularly good, but we know what Nim is capable of uh, when he's there. I mean, I don't know if I, I don't know if McEwen and Nim are as good as the Hauser brothers in terms of putting points on the board. But all they have to do is keep defenses honest, hit a few shots to allow Howard to have all the openings he needs to put up the points when he has to put them up. And Sakar Adam is arguably one of the best defenders in the Big East. And, you know, he's up there, right right up there with the likes of, you know, Quincy McKnight, for one. Uh, We'll get to him later on. But game prediction, I I think this is going to be completely different from two years ago. I think Marquette flips the script and wins this game. And I think they, I'm not saying it's a must win, but it would be really good to have in their pocket going into an in-state rivalry game this weekend at Wisconsin. Yeah, I think a game like this gives Marquette a level of credibility that I think they lost in the offseason because they lost to Hauser Brothers. If they can find a way to beat a team like Purdue this early in the season, it tells everybody else that Marquette is still in business, even though they lost two elite scorers like that. So, again, that'll be at 9 Eastern on FS1. And around the same time, it'll be on the Big Ten Network. It'll be Providence and Northwestern. Providence, they looked really good in their first two games against Sacred Heart and NJIT. I was impressed by so many people. I mean, I, I mean, you could go right down the list of who looked up to the plate big time. But uh, who are some guys that really impressed you from Providence that you think will play a big role in Evanston on Wednesday? Everything starts with Balfo Diallo. Uh, Diallo's a senior. Diallo is their leading returning scorer. Diallo's a guy who basically they ask him to do a lot of things. They ask him to shoot from three. They ask him to score down low. They ask him to defend power forwards once in a while. And Alpha Diallo had two big games. Uh, the other guy to keep in mind that's very interesting is their new transfer point guard from UMass, Luane Pipkins. Now, Pipkins had a really good game against Sacred Heart, 
in their opener when they put 106 points on the board. He backed off a little bit against NJIT. Uh, I don't know if this is the type of game they need Pipkins to come up huge in uh, because they're playing a Northwestern team, which frankly didn't look very good at all, and they don't look like they have the talent profile to keep up with a Providence team. Uh, but I'll be interested to see how Pipkins plays in basically his first big game for Providence. Games, Emmett Holt, because this was a guy who's been on the shelf for like two years now, and now that he's fully healthy, he's looking really, really, really good. I mean, I know Nate Watson's hurt, but if there was a guy, I mean, they needed him to step up, and he's done that and then some. Yeah, you have him and you have uh, Greg Gant, another big man who is coming off an injury for Providence. I don't know if they necessarily, again, I don't know if they necessarily need that type of size in a game like the one on Wednesday night against Northwestern. But going forward, depending on how long Watson's still on, still on the shelf and how long he can, you need guys like that to provide at least some defensive presence inside for a Providence team that might play four guards most of the time with Pipkins, with Diallo, and with David Duke and A.J. Reese. And don't forget down low, another important big man, Khalif Young. So um, let's, talk, let's talk a little about a little bit about Northwestern. I mean, it's, obviously they're going to be the underdog in this game, but who's the one guy that could maybe flip the script and turn the tables in a way and give Providence some fits? Uh, well, I'm looking at uh, I'm looking at a guy like Miller Cop. Uh, they have some really good freshmen at, at Northwestern. Of course, the problem is that they're inexperienced. Uh, I don't know if their talent level is quite the highest. The one thing I thought about in thinking about this Northwestern team is how hyped everyone got when Northwestern finally made their first NCAA tournament in 2017 under Chris Collins. And the thing is, Collins hasn't capitalized on how excited people Northwestern was the story of college basketball and they got within a basket or two short of making the sweet 16 in that tournament and now you're just looking at the talent profile that they have three years later and the fact that they couldn't find a way to beat a team like Merrimack at home uh, a Merrimack team that's just starting in division one uh, I think I joked with you on Twitter the other night that the that Northwestern, at least the bad Northwestern, is back, which is unfortunate for a matchup like this against Providence. But but the reality is that they, they just don't have the types of weapons on paper that make it look like they can give Providence a competitive game. And th- that was Merrimack's first Division One win. So congrats to Merrimack. I know it's a big hockey school, but transitioning from D2 in the NE10 conference uh, one of the best conferences in Division Two to D1, getting that first win. And also worth mentioning, Merrimack is going to play at Providence uh, not, too, not too far down the road. Uh, but back to this game, I, I think it's very clear Providence is going to win this game, and I think they're going to win handily. I agree. So, and then let's finally get into Thursday night. That's obviously – the big night that everyone's looking forward to. Let's start with the game that's going to precede the main event. And that is, I think a game that a lot of people are overlooking. John Fanta pointed at that game as an intriguing game to look forward to Penn state, Georgetown in DC at capital one arena. And this Georgetown team in their first couple of games, 
they've struggled. And I think the problems that they had defensively last season where they were the worst team in the Big East in terms of defensive efficiency, I think those problems have resurfaced in the last two games against Mount St. Mary's and Central Arkansas. Uh, yeah, absolutely. It was it was troubling watching that game, how easily Central Arkansas was getting shooting off against that much, much hyped backcourt of James Akinju and Mac McClung. The thing about Akinju and McClung is Akinju is only six foot oh and McClung's only six foot three. So if you put guards of any size against those two, they're probably going to get their shots off. I don't know how it's going to be hard for those guys to, to sort of challenge uh, jump shooters who are taller than they are. So you're going to be able to work your offense. The question is, are you going to be able to knock shots down against Georgetown? Um, and teams like Central Arkansas and Mount St. Mary's didn't quite knock off enough shots to maybe pull an upset in a game like that. A team like Penn State, though, has much, much more experienced weapons and much more talented weapons. So they may give the Georgetown backcourt a hard time on the defensive end of the court. And I think the biggest thing with Penn State is they have a legitimate force that could be an All-American. I think he's definitely all Big Ten first team, and that's Lamar Stevens. And that, that I feel like he is going to be, given Georgetown's defensive tendencies, he could – go off for a huge night and possibly give Penn State a signature road win early on. Yeah, but here comes where the guy who probably did play the best over those first two games for Georgetown comes into play, and that's Omar Year 7, the seven-foot transfer from NC State. Year 7 had a double-double, I think, in the first eight minutes of the game against Central Arkansas. He got, tw- I think he had 20 points against Central Arkansas and 17 against Mount St. Mary's. The thing that Ewing is doing with your seven is he's having your seven play a lot more of the center defensively and offensively than he was playing at NC State. And I think part of the reason why a guy like you seven transfers to a place like Georgetown is he's hoping that Patrick Ewing can show him how to play NBA style defense and NBA style offense for a seven foot guy. I think your seven's going to give Stevens a little bit more than Stevens might expect to be able to handle on Thursday night, uh, because your seven's if if your seven plays to his seven foot size and your seven plays the way he played against Central Arkansas, uh, he's going to get some rebounds. He might be able to jam the lame up against a guy like Stevens. Stevens is a tremendous tremendous talent. Don't get me wrong, but don't sell your seven short with his opportunities to match up defensively against Stevens. And you know what? When I was watching the game against Central Central Arkansas, I just love the way Yurtsevin was going about his business. Like he, he's just so calm, cool, and collected. I mean, he doesn't really show a lot of emotion. He just, he's just doing his job out there. And I, I think that mentality, I mean, Believe me, a lot of the other personalities on that team, especially guys like McClung and Akinjo, who show a lot of emotion, I mean, it doesn't really translate. But I will say this about this game. X-Factor for Georgetown, coming off the bench compared to where he was in the starting role at Power Forward a year ago, Josh LeBlanc. He is an explosive player, 
and a guy that was able to develop a jump shot later in the season. If he could work both inside and out and play at the level that he was towards the end of last season, I think Georgetown is going to fare a lot better than people think. I mean, I had Georgetown winning this game, you know, a few weeks ago, but after that murky start against Mount St. Mary's, starting to question myself a little bit. So I wonder what you got to say about what your game prediction is now. Well, I predicted Georgetown to win this game by a couple of possessions. I'm going to stick with that for a couple of reasons. One, I think this is the type of game that Ewing can get Akinjo and McClung focused on. It's a little bit hard. You know, look, I mean, when you're playing Mount St. Mary's in Central Arkansas, you're going to wander. I mean, McClung and Akinjo are already – have their, might have their heads spinning in many different directions. But when Ewing tells them, look, this is a game that's going to be, this is a game which people are going to be watching. This is a game at home. This is a game we need to get in order to make the NCAA tournament. I mean, this is, I mean, it's, it's a little bit troubling to say this, but this is an NCAA or bust type year for a team like Georgetown. Talent-wise, they have no business not making it to the NCAA tournament. And if you blow the opportunity for a quadrant one win, like this game against Penn State's going to be on Thursday night, uh, you're going to have to make it up some other place, either playing a game better in the Big East or making uh, making sure you beat a Texas team that they're playing next week. So in that sense, I would be shocked if guys like Akinjo and McClurg don't play well because Ewing's going to impress upon them how important this game is on Thursday night. And they get the home crowd. Uh, now, it's, the question is, how excited is that crowd at Georgetown going to be playing a team like Penn State? Usually that crowd only gets fired up for playing teams like Villanova and teams like Syracuse and maybe mm-hmm. Seton Hall. So Penn State's like, well, you know, we're playing Penn State. Who are th- That's a football team. But the other thing is that should be a very heavily, heavily Georgetown crowd. If it's a good game, hopefully they'll have a little more energy than they usually have. And I think that their backcourt too much for Penn State to handle, assuming a Kendra and McClurg show up on Thursday night. Yeah, I think the big thing is if it, I, I've I've watched Georgetown's crowds over the last few years, they historically aren't very active. Let, let's that's just being nice about it. Now they, I think they have to treat this like a big game, and if they do that's going to translate to their play on the court. And I, I think that's kind of why they kind of struggled a little bit in those two games last week against lesser opponents like Mount St. Mary's and Central Arkansas. So, all right, let's move on. It's We got to get to this. The main event, number three, Michigan State, against number 12, Seton Hall, from what should be a sold-out Prudential Center, could break an attendance record on Thursday night at the Rock in terms of Seton Hall basketball. So... There are so many storylines surrounding this, but let's start with the one that we have known about since Saturday afternoon, and that is the potential absence of All-American candidate Miles Powell. On a scale from 1 to 10, really, how much of an impact does his absence leave on the remainder of the team? For a game like this, I think it's an 8. I think this is the type of game that you – against an opponent as elite as Michigan State and with all the things that are going on with Michigan State right now. Not having a Miles Powell put Seton Hall at a distinct disadvantage. Uh, not be, not only because of his scoring, but the way he can energize a crowd, 
the way that it, it helps his teammates around him to have his energy on the court and the fact that there might be a time in a game like this where Seton Hall needs a basket to stop a Michigan State run or to keep Michigan State or what to make, keep Michigan State from blowing them out. And you don't have the potential just to give the ball off to Powell and let him do what he does and scoring baskets when you need him to score. Uh, the question is, is there somebody else on Seton Hall's team who has that type of ability and that mentality to do that? Uh, Sandro Mamish Kelishvili uh, played pretty well in Powell's absence against Stony Brook. Quincy McKnight had a big second half. And even Shavar Reynolds. Shavar Reynolds is somebody who people are going to overlook going into this game. But when Shavar Reynolds is on the court, it, en- it enhances the defense. I think that if pa- – I mean, I think that uh, Kevin Willard's going to play pa- Reynolds a lot against Cassius Winston, which you, might, which you might laugh at that because Reynolds was a walk-on two or three years ago. But when you look at the way Reynolds plays defense, uh, he's very good at man-to-man defense. Now, Winston might be a level too great for him because just Winston can do it all. Winston can pass. Winston can shoot. Winston can drive the basket. And, you know, Winston is obviously a player of the year candidate. But maybe a guy like Reynolds who maybe Winston doesn't take quite as seriously as uh, he might somebody like a Quincy McKnight or even if Miles Powell were going to play defense against him for a few possessions. Maybe Reynolds can can, uh, muddy the water a little bit uh, against a Cassius Winston and make things a little more difficult for Winston than he might be bargaining for. And speaking of Winston, obviously the other big storyline is taking a lot of headlines nationally. Uh, Cassius losing his younger brother, Zach, um, uh, late Saturday night. He was struck and killed by a train out in Albion, Michigan. And with a heavy heart, Cassius played on Sunday night against Binghamton and put together a double-double with 17 points and 11 assists. And with him going on the road, I mean, this is arguably the best player in college basketball in a big stage, big city, like right outside of New York with a national TV audience with probably Gus Johnson and Bill Raftery on the call. <laughs> um, but, you mean I mean, Brian, I'm – as, as, as a – Sorry. Uh, it's, to, it's okay. It's okay. I was about so, to as a – Go ahead. Sorry. I was about to joke. You mean we can't – Seton Hall can't get Brian Custer in the building? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man. I, I mean, I think everyone that knows about the streak would love to have Brian Custer, but with a game like this, I mean, I don't think there's any way you can't get anybody other than Gus and Coach Raff on the call. But, I mean, in a big atmosphere like this, I, as a Seton Hall alum, I am just praying and advocating for all the Pirate Nation between Bluebeard Army, the student section, and the rest of the building to ca- show Cassius and his family uh, some love uh, during the pregame uh, introductions and whatnot. Um, I mean, this is such a difficult situation. I can't even imagine just playing under those circumstances, but yet Cassius did last night. He's probably going to do so again on Thursday. So, I mean, you're a little bit closer to Seton Hall right now than I am right now. So um, what are you really sensing in terms of uh, – uh, how Pirate Nation is going to receive Cassius on Thursday night? Well, I don't think anybody's, I don't think there's any going to be ill will towards him. I mean, I think if you were still there, I think the good old Sign Mafia could have produced a wonderful tribute to uh, Zachary Winston. 
Uh, that being said, I'm thinking more about where Michigan State's coming from. They lose the Kentucky, they lose to Kentucky last Tuesday night, and they did not look particularly good doing it. And there were a lot of questions, particularly since they lost Josh Langford, possibly for the whole season, that where was the help going to come for Cassius Winston? It was one thing to have a guy with all of Winston's abilities, but if teams can focus upon Winston, and Kentucky did a very good job of that on Tuesday night, of zeroing in on Winston, even though Winston went off for 21 points, he couldn't get his teammates involved, and it led to them losing that game in Kentucky. The one thing I think Michigan State gets out of this, for better or for worse, is they're going to be laser-focused the rest of the season. They're going to be thinking, we don't want to let Cassius Winston down. We don't want to disappoint our leader. We don't want to disappoint our All-American. This is something where the, the guys on the team, the guys on the team they need to step up, such as Aaron Henry, such as Xavier Tillman, such as Kyle Ahearns, those are the type of guys who are going to step their games up a little bit because they're going to want to do whatever they can to help Cassius Winston out. Uh, and I expect Winston played really well last night. He, he looked like the Cassius Winston that we're used to seeing uh, when, he, when he took the court against Binghamton. And I think being able to jump back into his senior season, jump into a situation where he's trying to impress NBA scouts, is going to really help his game on the court. Uh, because it's going to give him, it's going to give him an outlet from getting away from the the family tragedy, obviously. And I think it's something that's going to, if there's, that's an intangible that's going to improve his game. I think, unfortunately, even if Miles Powell were able to get on the court, I still think uh, that type of emotional, that type of emotional situation really helps Michigan State out, not only Thursday night but going forward the rest of the season. I kind of agree with you on that. And I think Cassius, I mean, this is just so hard to deal with, but now that he's had, you know, time to, you know, soak this in now, he's gotten court experience dealing with this. Now he's got one game under his belt and he performed really well. So, I mean, in a big game like this, that's where he's at his best. So I'm expecting nothing less than a stellar game from the preseason player of the year in college basketball. And I think Michigan state is going to win this game. It's just a matter of if miles Powell comes to play or not. So let's just say miles Powell does play somehow, some way. Um, What kind of difference does that make in terms of Seton hall keeping the game close or maybe not? Well, obviously the Seton hall is going to, uh, be better offensively with Powell on the court. Again, I think it's a situation where Powell, uh, the way he did in a lot of games last year, will be able will, will find a way to would, would find a way to score the score the ball, whether it by three, whether it by driving, or whether it getting himself to the foul line to keep Seton Hall in this game offensively. What was interesting watching the Stony Brook game the other the other afternoon though was watching how guys like Reynolds, guys like McKnight guys like uh, Anthony Nelson and uh, guys like, uh, oh God, why do I remember Jordan? Uh, the Seton Hall guards who all came in to fill the gap for Miles Powell, how well they played defensively uh, against Stony Brook. 
Uh, Michigan State, of course, is a much better team talent-wise, so asking that type of effort might be too much. But I think that they can. I think either way, whether with or without Powell, I think that Seton Hall can put a respectable performance on the court. I think, though, with or without Powell, Michigan State has too much going for it with Winston, with some of the other players on their team. And I think the emotional advantage that Michigan State will have just being that much more focused uh, because they're going to be playing this game for Zach Winston. And they're going to be playing the rest of the season for They're going to play the rest of the season. I mean, now, I mean, Michigan State was probably national championship or bust. But even now, I mean, who on that Michigan State team wants to have a bad game in March and have to go to Cassius Winston and tell him he's sorry that they didn't put a full performance out there if they happen to lose sometime, you know, in the NCAA tournament? Uh, And particularly a game like this. I mean, they don't want to they don't want to be one and two. I mean, that's something where I know it's I know it's November. I know they have the Big Ten season to make up for a bad non-conference start. But it's going to bring a lot more. A lot of those questions that came off the court when they lose to Kentucky will really be magnified if somehow Seton Hall finds a way to win this game. Yeah, and especially more so because it doesn't get much easier for the Spartans from here because you got Duke in the Big Ten ACC Challenge in East Lansing in early December, and they could potentially run into Kansas down in Maui. So, so many so many other big games are coming up that I think for Michigan State, they gotta, they absolutely have to win this game no matter what. Yeah, I think there's going to be a sense of urgency for Michigan State, just like to a certain extent there was a sense of urgency for them to play well last night. So that people wouldn't, you know, say, I mean, you, you shouldn't really say that because of the situation that Winston was in last night. But then you sort of like, well, you know, not only on top of the fact they didn't play well against Kentucky, but how is Winston stuff off the court affecting him? You know, I mean, as much as people shouldn't think about that, that's what people think about. But last night, how well they played and how well Winston played will tell you that they're going to bring out a pretty good effort on Thursday night against Seton Hall. And unfortunately, Seton Hall, it looks like they're probably going to be shorthanded. Their player of the year, All-American candidate, Miles Powell. So again, that'll wrap it all up at 8.30 on FS1 on Thursday night. It's going to be arguably Seton Hall's biggest non-conference test Maybe ever, but definitely since 1993, when the eventual national champion North Carolina Tar Heels came into the into the Meadowlands and knocked off Terry DeHare and company. So, Patrick, uh, thanks for breaking down all eight of these games. Um, I'll, and and I'm, I'll be sure to bring you on at some point later on this year, especially once conference season gets rolling. Timmy, thanks a lot. It was a pleasure talking. to that the game should be exciting i know i have the Big East winning five out of the eight but you never know most of these gavit games have been four to four so i mean maybe purdue finds a way to beat marquette maybe penn state beats a uh an unfocused georgetown team in front of a quiet building on thursday night who knows but that's why they play the games and there's nothing like it and that's what makes college basketball so great patrick thanks again hope to hear from you soon all right timmy thank you Welcome back inside the Igloo. Thanks again to Patrick Madden for joining me to preview the Gavit games this week. It's always an exciting week in the world of Big East basketball. And obviously at the center of it is going to be the Seton Hall Pirates there in the main event Thursday night against 
Michigan State, the preseason number one. And joining me is the athletic director at Seton Hall, Brian Felt. Brian, thanks for joining me today. Great to be with you, Tim. Thanks. Well, let's get started by talking about what happened over the weekend on Saturday Something that I know I didn't get to experience as a student, a men's women's basketball doubleheader inside Historic Walls Gym with women playing at 11 a.m. and then the men were the main event at 2.30. What kind of went into um, coordinating that doubleheader? Well, I mean, I just kind of – when schedules align sometimes and if you can make it happen, we try to make it happen. I mean, um, you know, it was due really the men playing our first two home games of the year in Walsh uh, and then obviously with our you know women's team using Walsh as their home – court uh for for every game so it just kind of lined up that way it was a it was a saturday where we could do both uh it's always kind of fun to have the double header it, it really brings a little bit more of a crowd uh to our women's game certainly and really and keeps everybody around for the men and then we had a volleyball game that night so long day for our staff they worked uh, incredibly hard they pulled it off and uh and it was certainly fun for the fans and the promotion for both of those games was a teddy bear toss. And, you know, it's obviously big in hockey, but it's certainly trickled into other sports. And I can only imagine that yesterday must have been, no pun intended, to slam dunk of a promotion. Yeah, it was awesome. Um, that was new for us. It was really brought to us by someone here on campus that has put this together for some local foster homes. Um, and honestly, it was a tremendous idea. We were happy to be part of it. The uh, the output support from the fans was really great, and it was really cool to see all of that uh, kind of transpire in both games. So, uh, and certainly, it's for a great cause. So, uh, moving back towards uh, you, recently took the AD job at Seton Hall, replacing uh, Pat Lyons, who took um, a higher position within the university. Um, how have you viewed your tenure as AD so far? Uh, it's been great. It's been uh, listen. It's it's great to be back home, as I keep saying. Uh, certainly I've enjoyed, uh, being back here. Uh, my family has enjoyed being back, uh, certainly getting to get back in, into it with everyone in the athletic department. I certainly know a lot of the faces, a lot of the people already, uh, and certainly getting to know a lot of the new coaches and, and administration that we have has been fantastic. It's been great to work with president Nair, uh, certainly a, a, an old friend and colleague of mine, Pat Lyons. So it's, it's really been nice kind of to come back and, and be in uh, the mix with everybody. Uh, but it's been a, it's certainly been a busy few first few months and uh, I'm excited obviously as we all are for our basketball seasons as they are here and, and we just wrapped up fall seasons or coming close to wrapping up fall seasons and uh, and, and I'm honestly uh, I'm, I'm just uh, tremendously excited to be back. So um, Jerry Carino wrote a great article about how much Seton Hall has grown as an institution over the last 40 years since they joined the Big East. Uh, from your personal perspective, how have you seen uh, the university grow both as a student and as an athletics department employee? Yeah, and as an alum, I mean, I can tell you as an alum, the joke I think a lot of fellow alumni and myself have, I hear it all the time, is I probably wouldn't be able to get into Seton Hall today if I applied. And I think that's probably true in my case. Um, and my wife and I say it. I mean, the academic profile of this university and its growth has been absolutely fantastic. Um, and it's been a, it's been so fantastic to just watch it uh, because certainly the value of my degree is I've watched the growth of Seton Hall has only improved. Uh, and that's what everybody would want. Anybody wants that as an alumnus of any institution. Uh, so certainly as a an alum, I've noticed that as an administrator and somebody that's worked here for, you know, 16 years prior uh, and, and now today, 
uh, it's always been a, a very family atmosphere. It's a beautiful place to um, to not only work but also help raise a family. My children have really been, you know, grown up around Seton Hall all of their lives. Um, it, it 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 just breeds family atmosphere, which is what I love about it. It's the kind of the way we we treat our department. Um, but everybody works hard, and and you get that vibe too on this campus. You know, I think everybody puts in the effort, puts in the work, um, and yet there's just such a wonderful, um, you know cordial way about everyone is here so it's a special place no question about it now i mean it's going to continue to grow with um whilst jim is going to undergo some renovations i believe over the summer if i got that correct uh and, and we will actually break ground on the walsh uh, gym renovation in april in april all right well, yeah, we'll start must once, essentially once women's basketball season has completed we will we will Again, it's not going to happen until April, but that's essentially what the earliest we can get in there will be April. Always, I mean, that that's always got to be exciting. And then in terms of other on-campus facilities, the softball field got a facelift not too long ago. And now ONC Carroll is uh, getting a facelift of its own. The soccer side's been complete. And I've, I've already seen some of the baseball field renovations, and it's going to look absolutely luxurious. I mean, it's going to feel like a real ballpark from what I've seen. So, I mean, I guess the question I'm kind of posing to you is, um, I mean, you're really essentially driving Seton Hall into, I wouldn't say into the 21st century because we've been in it now for almost 20 years now, but you're really putting a modern feel to the campus now in terms of its athletic facilities. Yeah, and I think that's also the sense across the board. I mean, I think a lot of there's been a lot of done on the on the university side, the academic side, in terms of some new facilities. We've had some new buildings get uh, be put up. Bethany Hall is probably the latest building to be completed, which is absolutely stunning. Uh, but yeah, in terms of athletic facilities, I mean, the transformation that's happening at ONT Carroll Field is is going to be uh, just amazing uh, to see that ballpark setting now with that brick facade up there. I think is absolutely beautiful. Uh, also with the, the revamped soccer seating is very nice. I mean, I, honestly, I just, the whole outdoor stadium feel now really gives you more of that division one athletic feeling that we were trying to, to put forth. And at the same time, it really is an appealing piece of campus. So now when you drive through on that main drive, you, you really get to see, um, just an improved athletic experience right there, uh, in front of you. So, uh, and then certainly inside, I mean, Walsh gym is going to be a big deal for us. I think it's, um, you know, your gym is always kind of your crown jewel uh, of any athletic department. And Walsh Gym, you know, this 19, you know, 41 beautiful old gym, style gym that you see in a lot of schools, uh, you know, it needed a bit of an, uh, of kind of, you know, a, a small renovation, if you will, just to kind of, clean, you know, update it, if you will, is probably the word I'm looking for, a nice update. So put new seats in Walsh Gym, which would make it much better for the fan experience. Those are the original seats from the 1940s that are in there now. We'll get rid of the bleacher seating, put chair backs in there. So everyone's got a nice comfortable seat. And at the same time, we'll, we'll really update it with technology. Uh, we're building, uh, we're going to put in a center hung scoreboard with video boards, put some video boards alongside the stage on the wall, really just kind of give it that real updated tech feeling that I think every fan really is looking for when they're in an arena setting. So and it'll be a new floor, new rims, new baskets, everything like that too. Everything will kind of get a new, a new footprint on it. So um, that's really, really exciting. And certainly, as you mentioned, we've done a lot across the board. Uh, you talk softball, I mean, you talk about the things we've done, men's basketball renovations in terms of locker rooms and, uh, and the training room renovations that we did when it all started varsity weight room. Uh, we've really tried to touch almost upon every aspect locker rooms for all of our sports, a new hall of fame, you're right. I mean, over the last, gosh, you look six, seven years, uh, we've 
it's been a very conscious effort to upgrade our athletic facilities. And I think we've done a very good job of that. And now you have to continue not only maintain them, but find ways to continue to enhance them. And that's really our next hurdle. Yeah, I'll tell you what, as, as a student, I'm definitely going to miss that old timey feel inside of Walsh gym. That's for sure. Yeah, I think it'll still have, I, I know your point. I think it'll still have it in a sense. I think it's still got that old gym feel to it, but it will have some just modern upgrades, which I think it was needed. So. Yeah, absolutely nothing wrong with that. Now, keeping on with the basketball trend, obviously this is the most buzz that we've seen around the Seton Hall men's basketball program in close to 30 years, definitely over a quarter century for sure. Um, I mean, I mean, you've talked about, you know, just the overall hype around the program, and it's definitely shown in terms of the ticket numbers as the curtain's going to be opened up for six games this coming year, which is, I'm pretty sure, double the amount from the previous three years combined. I mean, numbers don't lie, and it definitely shows that people really, really want to see this team. Yeah, I mean, no doubt about it. You're right. Numbers never do lie. And uh, and the great thing is that we are certainly seeing it in terms of numbers of ticket sales. Um, I mean, that, that really illustrates the point. I mean, our fan base certainly has embraced the excitement uh, surrounding our program right now. And, and that's, that's wonderful. I mean, Kevin's done a tremendous job building this program to get it where it is today uh, as a vet, as is everybody else that's had a part in it here. Uh, and certainly all of our, you get these young men, our student athletes and the dedication that they've put forth in representing Seton Hall. So uh, it's, it's exciting. I certainly, as I say all the time, now we got to play these games and certainly all of the, the publicity has been great and the hype has been great. Uh, but now we got to go and, uh, and play. So, I know our, our guys are really excited to be able to go out and prove themselves, prove themselves to not only their fan, our fans and all that, but to themselves. And, and, and they really have uh, high hopes for this year, as I do, as I know most of us all do for them. Um, so it's exciting. And it's exciting to see that support uh, in terms of ticket sales and, and people donating to Pirate Blue. It's, uh, it certainly is the validation I think everybody loves. And that first curtain-raising game is – only a few days away. It's Thursday night against yeah. Michigan State. And there has been – there was hype months ago when they announced this game. And now that we're so close, um, what are you kind of sensing just around the program in the university as, you know, the days, you know, are counting down until that big Prudential Center opener? Well, I mean, this game is, I mean, talk about a game to open up with. I mean, you're playing, you know, a top five team in the country. Uh, you've got a, they have a tremendous following all their own, but our fan base just being as excited as they are to be the first game in Prudential Center to start your year. I mean, I'm not sure you could pick a better one. Um, so we're ecstatic about it. I think we're going to expect a very, very large crowd. We've opened two curtains on both sides of the court. Uh, I mean, we're, you know, we're approaching the 13,000 mark. I mean, it could continue to keep growing as the week goes on. Um, so, so this is special. This is really, really special. And I can't wait to get it going. Now, um, during the last year that you were at Seton Hall, that was when the Prudential Center attendance record for Seton Hall men's basketball was set. It was 16,733 against Villanova when they came to town back in 2017. Do you, uh, do you envision that attendance record being broken at some point this year? Uh, you know, it's, it's certainly possible. I mean, if there's ever a year that could do it, 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 I would, I would rank this one as a pretty good shot. Uh, yeah, I mean, absolutely. We have the Villanova game is at the end of the year for us. So, I mean, that continues to sell. That's another one. That's a very likely candidate to do that. Um, certainly with these six games being sold out, um, you 
know, we have a chance on a couple of occasions. So, yeah, totally possible. Um, and something I uh, failed to touch on before, I mean, you're kind of new to this fraternity of Big East athletic directors. I can only imagine that the camaraderie around the league has got to be pretty good. So um, what, what are some of the – uh, what are some of the vibes you've gotten from, I mean, there's a lot of great athletic directors across the board in the Big East. So um, what have you been able to learn from them and uh, how, have, how have talks been with them, you know, since you took over? Uh, it's been great. I mean, honestly, I've, I've said this since day one. I mean, when the new Big East was formed so many years ago and I was fortunate enough to be a, a, a part of that, uh, it was 10 like-minded institutions. And there's really been as real special camaraderie when you have that kind of, um, that kind of grouping of like-minded schools like that. So the ADs, I, I certainly got to know a lot of them during my previous time here. I got to know a lot of them even through my time at St. Peter's as ADs will sometimes have, you know, we'll have different conferences or, or meetings along, you know, throughout the year. So I've got to know a lot of them. Um, uh, some of them I know very well, some of them I'm getting to know more and more, but there's a, a tremendous, uh, you know, we all have a real nice camaraderie amongst the group and, and it's been uh, great to be back with a lot of them. And that's only going to continue to grow with UConn uh, returning to the league next year. Um, but uh, just to kind of just wrap things up, I mean, you've been around Seton Hall and the Big East basically for up to 30 years now. So I guess mm -hmm. the question I got to pose to you just to uh, wrap this all up, uh, what makes the Big East so special and unique from your personal perspective? Well, I think history and tradition of the conference especially really stands out to me. I mean, you, you talk about a conference that was formed in 1979 as a basketball power conference, and it's always, you know, been able to meet that standard. I mean, you talk about the, the, the beasts of the East, you know, years back in the Georgetowns and the and uh, and the Syracuses and the Yukons and Seton Hall's big runs in the early 90s and uh, Villanova's teams in the 80s. I mean, you had a, you just had a, a special uh, – you know, basketball brand uh, that ha that brings an amazing amount of tradition. I think obviously having Madison Square Garden lends to that and being in the, you know, in the Mecca of basketball. I think then you have what I said before, this like-minded institution where now we went back to not the Big East was incredibly special before as you had all these, just these big monster teams. And when you added the Louisvilles and you had West Virginia's and, you know, yeah, it was a, it was a big league. Um, now you go to this 10, you almost kind of went back to your roots in a weird way. Uh, as you, you know, years ago, went back to these 10 schools, uh, certainly a lot of Catholic schools that bring a lot of tradition to the table. Um, and then you have these schools that are just all like minded in the sense that they are basketball driven institutions. So that's what makes us incredibly special. Uh, I mean, certainly you look, you look at the last couple of years and you look at a conference that's got 10 schools and uh, there's a year we're putting 70 percent of our teams in the tournament. Uh, we have a team that's won two national championships in the past five years. I mean, you results tell a story certainly um but our history and our traditions also help with that as, as well so um it, it's it's absolutely special across the board and and the biggie certainly as a brand it, uh carries a lot of weight all right well brian uh thanks for taking the time to uh jump inside the igloo talk about a little bit of everything and best of luck to your entire athletic department uh back in south orange i know i i from just from 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 an alumni perspective, during my time as a student, I look worked really really closely with you guys. Definitely miss everyone in South Orange. Uh, so best of luck to everyone who's still there. Uh, best of luck Thursday and throughout the season with everything.
I appreciate it, Tim. You were a, you were a legendary student uh, employee here in uh, at Seton Hall. We, and we appreciate everything you did for us when you were a student here. Certainly one of the most passionate fans I know, and I appreciate all of that. And uh, it was a pleasure to be with you. Yep. And listen, I will definitely make make sure I'll go out of my way to uh, say hi to you whenever um, when I'm in town in February. Look forward to seeing you then. All right. Thanks, Brian. All right, pal. Thanks, Tim. Welcome back inside the Igloo. Before I move on to this episode's icebreaker, just a friendly reminder, the two teams for the biggies who are not competing in this year's Gavit Games, St. John's and Xavier, they will both be in action this week and both on Tuesday. Xavier, who is now number 21 in the country after starting the season ranked number 19, they will host Missouri at 7 p.m. on CBS Sports Network. That'll be the return game of a home-and-home series that started a year ago. Missouri won last year's game in Columbia over Xavier, so the Musketeers are looking to exact some revenge on the Tigers this time around at the Cintas Center. Meanwhile, with St. John's, they will also play at 7 o'clock on Tuesday as they take on New Hampshire at Carneseca Arena. That'll be on FS2 if you're looking to watch that game. So with that said, let's transition into this episode's icebreaker. Now, earlier in the show, I briefly touched on the heartbreaking news surrounding Michigan State guard Cassius Winston, who lost his brother, Zach, after he was struck and killed by a train out in Albion, Michigan, late Saturday night. And a police report that surfaced yesterday said that Zach intentionally got onto the tracks so that he could be struck and killed by that train. So even though they didn't use the words, they are ruling it a suicide. And that got me thinking about mental health, especially in college sports, because it has taken a much stronger hold in the world of college sports, especially with what happened almost two years ago now with former Washington State quarterback Tyler Holinsky, who took his own life in January of 2018. And just this year, his younger brother has been carrying the torch for him at South Carolina, and he had a signature moment even though he did get hurt in that game where the Gamecocks were able to go on the road into Athens, Georgia and upset a then undefeated Georgia team in which Georgia was heavily favored. And in a way it was almost a miracle. And what I noticed that was really special was at the start of the third quarter, South Carolina fans in honor of Tyler Holinsky held up three fingers in the air in honor of Tyler, who wore number three at Washington State, and it even carried over into Georgia with even some Georgia fans doing the same. And it really goes to show how important mental health is, mental health awareness is, in our society today, even carrying over into sports. And with a situation like this, you realize that there are things that are so much bigger than sports, And Thursday night, I really feel like is going to be one of those moments between Michigan State and Seton Hall. And what I'm really hoping as a Seton Hall alum 
is that all the pirate nation, especially the Bluebeard Army, goes out of their way to uh, pay tribute to the late Zach Winston by cheering for Cassius when his name is announced uh, during the pregame introductions at The Rock. And I think that would be an awesome gesture in itself to show Cassius and the rest of his family that even though we're on the opposite sides of this game in particular, we all stand as one because no one should have to endure that kind of tragedy, especially with a young man taking his own life at just 19 years old. And that also got me thinking about some personal experiences of mine regarding mental health and suicide. Now, and this is really hard for me to open up about, but this is something I absolutely have to do in order to really convey my message and my stance on this. Now, when I was a senior in college, I really had to endure maybe the toughest semester, toughest stretch of four months that I've ever had to endure in my entire life. And it was so bad that three days before my 22nd birthday, I actually attempted to take my own life. And the reason why I wanted to do so that night was because I felt like I was letting the girl who I was dating at the time down. I felt like I was a burden to her and such a stain on her life that the only way I could have possibly made things right for her was to just take myself out completely and end my life. And what I decided to do that night was... I tried to jump out of the window of my dorm room, which was on the top floor of the building I lived in, which was Xavier Hall. Now, if you're listening to this and if you've ever been to Seton Hall, attended Seton Hall as a student, or even just visited, like if you know Xavier Hall, Xavier Hall is the tallest building for dorms on campus. It's seven floors up and... Most other buildings are no more than four floors. So it it really stands out. And I lived in the top floor of that building. And I in that moment, I was really willing to jump seven floors down to end my life. Because I felt like that was the right thing to do in that situation. Because... Simply put, I felt like I was mistreating this girl because of so many horrible things that I had done. And believe me, I'm not one to shy away from and admit that I did not treat her anywhere near as well as I should have. So my solution to the problem was to just completely remove myself and jump out of that window. However, it didn't happen because she pulled me down right as I had a foot on the ledge of that window. And the crazy thing about that was, even though that was a pretty climactic moment, that wasn't the end of it for me. 
because things didn't get better after that. No, they actually got worse. Just about two weeks after that happened, I had another mental breakdown and I was sent to the hospital to be checked on to see how I was doing mentally. And that was honestly the most scary and traumatizing experience of my entire life because I was in this hospital in East Orange and I got checked in at like four in the morning because that's when that breakdown happened to happen. And I just remember being around these people like one of them was in there because she tried to drink bleach to kill herself. And when I realized that I just broke down and cried, not even within an hour of being there because I just thought to myself, what the hell have I done to get myself here? Like, that's about as rock bottom as I've ever felt in my entire life. That's about as rock bottom as you can go, really. And I was in that hospital for 13 hours before my parents drove all the way down from Utica, New York, which is nearly a four-hour drive, to save me. And not to mention, I was two days away from getting to actually travel on the road to broadcast a men's basketball game with our student-run radio station, WSOU. And that was my first real road trip where I was going to get to stay overnight. And I was going to Providence, Rhode Island with one of my best friends who worked at the station with me. And he went to bat for me after I was discharged. And he told me, and he told our sports director, Tim deserves to go. If I'm going to be with him, I know he's going to be okay. And everything was okay. And funny thing was, not even 24 hours after I was discharged, I had to play an intramural basketball game. And that was our last regular season game. Even though I didn't score a lot, I played the game of my life in every facet because I wanted to show that I got the game of basketball. I'm going to be okay. And I played my heart out and we won. I mean, not that it matters to the whole plot of the story, but... Anyways, me and my best friend, we go down to Providence the next day. We call the game, and strangely enough, it's the only game in the history of the Big East to ever be suspended, and it was suspended because of unplayable floor conditions as the ice underneath the court at the Dunkin' Donuts Center was melting, causing the floor to be slippery, which forced Desi Rodriguez to sprain his ankle and miss the next three games. And then they had to finish the game the very next day at Providence's on-campus building, Alumni Hall. So, I mean, that was a whirlwind of a trip, but it was the trip of a lifetime, at least for me. And keep in mind, all this was happening, you know, I'm three months away from graduating at the time. So, I and I was so close. So close. And just to think that I nearly threw it all away that one night in early February of 2018, it's, it, it still lingers in my mind. And I think about it all the time. It's, it, it's not something that just comes and goes. Like 
it's on my mind constantly because stuff like that is just traumatizing and it lingers and sometimes it, it can haunt you. And it's certainly haunted me for a long time. Even, even now it does. Not as much as it did before, but it still does. And even then, a month later, I got to go to the NCAA tournament in Wichita, Kansas with my best friends. Really, since my freshman year of college, we went to Wichita to support our school. And that was the trip of a lifetime. I thought everything was going to be okay after that. But it wasn't. And with about a week or two before finals started, I had another mental breakdown and I was sent to the hospital again to be evaluated. And that was a little more productive, but things were still, you know, in shambles for me because, you know, here I am. I'm still at this point three weeks away from graduating and I'm still a mess. But thankfully, I had people who were looking out for me. And I'm going to name drop this one person and, this, and well, multiple people. Um, I was friends with a girl named Christina Vitale, who is now a news anchor out in Northern California. And she was in a class of mine my final semester. And she saw that I was going through all this stuff. So she reached out to me and told me, you know what? How about this? After class gets done at 1215 on Tuesday, it was literally the day after I got sent to the hospital. How about you come over to our house where me and a bunch of my sorority sisters live? How about you just come over for lunch and let's just talk about things. And my God, it was just so incredibly relieving just to get everything off my mind, everything off my chest and to talk with her and a bunch of people who are graduating with me also. And they all looked out for me. They all cared for me. They wanted to see me cross the finish line because a lot of people were rooting for me to do that, especially with everything that had happened leading up to that with, you know, going into senior year, I was chosen to be the leader of the Bluebeard Army. That was my goal literally since I stepped on, stepped foot on campus when I was a freshman and I did it. You know, everything I said I was going to do at Seton Hall, I did it. And the one thing, the last thing I needed to do was graduate. And it didn't seem like I was going to do it, especially with attempting suicide and getting sent to the hospital twice. But going over to their house, just talking with them for like an hour, sorting out all my problems and just getting my head back on straight in time for finals. That's what got me to the finish line. And I could not be more thankful for literally each and every, each and every girl who lived at that house, Christina, uh, both Morgans who lived there, Morgan Evich and Morgan Smith, Megan Sorrento, Steph Marone, Gabby Davis, Gabby Heffernan. List goes on and on. Jenna May too. Can't forget her. Um, so yeah, I, and eventually I did do it. I did graduate. I made it and everyone's so proud of me. And I thought that once I graduated, I'm like, you know what? I feel like all my problems are going to go away. But just like every other time I thought they were, 
they didn't go away. And things just continued to get worse as I struggled with loneliness and struggling to adapt to the real world. A lot of stuff was bothering me and on my mind. And I even went as far nearly a year ago now in December of 2018 to essentially writing a suicide note where I basically laid everything out and said goodbye. Well, as you know, you know, I didn't say goodbye because I did have the right support system there to make sure they didn't see me go. And if I'm being completely honest with you, you know, if it wasn't for them, I wouldn't be here right now. And even, even now, like literally not even three, almost two weeks ago now, I was really debating canceling this show because I felt like I, I was a complete failure. Nothing I could ever do was right. And what's the point in having a podcast if it was just going to be an utter failure? So I was really that close to canceling it. But you know what? I had the right people who still believed in me and gave me the will to keep going just like everyone had before, you know, when I was sent to the hospital twice, the girls of 49 ward, like I mentioned, you know, I had the right people looking out for me and they gave me the will to keep going. And, you know, what I've realized is that, you know, in a time like this, really all you need is just someone who can just be there for you and support you through tough times. And right now, those tough times are hitting Cassius and his family. I mean, I can't even imagine, you know, being in his shoes right now, a 21-year-old kid who just lost his younger brother at the age of 19. Like, that's unfathomable, and I feel for him so much. Like, all I can really say is that I just hope that Bluebeard Army and the rest of Pirate Nation on Thursday night, they really show, I just hope that they show out and show that they stand firmly behind Cassius and his family by cheering for Cassius when he's announced during pregame introductions and even making a sign for him. And what I've come to learn is that really nobody's life deserves to be cut short, whether it be by taking their own life or being struck with an illness like cancer, something along those lines that ravages their body and kills them before they can really even get their life started. And that's just a tragedy in itself. So essentially what I'm trying to say here is that, you know, you never know when to, when your last day is going to be, it's not predetermined as we've learned with Zach Winston, who was on Albion college's division three basketball team. He was supposed to, play a lot during his sophomore season, much more than he did last year as a freshman. But because of what happened, you know, that's not going to happen anymore because he's gone. 
and I think in a in a larger light, I think we all really need to just cherish every day that we have on this earth because you never know if it's going to be your last. And I know it's so trivial and corny, but I, I really mean that. And, and as crazy as it sounds, it's a hundred percent true. We really don't know when our, if today is going to be our last day, we don't know when our life is just going to end. We don't, we don't know that my dad, if I'm being completely honest, I mean, he's told me this before when he was in his twenties, when he was 25, he was diagnosed with testicular cancer. He thought he was going to die and fall victim to it, but he didn't. And ever since he became cancer-free in October of 1987, he has lived every day like his last. And as time has gone on, the more I look to him as an inspiration because if he can beat that, which is a much tough, I, I'm not going to, I know I was comparing apples to oranges, but if he could beat cancer, you know what? I could beat the demons I'm battling inside, you know? So basically, just to wrap this all up, mental, your mental health matters. If you need to take a day to just mentally recover from everything that's bothering you, stress, anxiety, whatever it may be. Don't be afraid to do it. Because your mental health matters. And if you want to, like, you shouldn't have to risk it at work. If, if, if work is actually causing you all this stress and anxiety, then feel free to take a day to just get away from it if it means getting yourself back in the right place mentally. And also just to everyone who's close to you, family, close friends, relatives, whoever, make sure you tell them you love them every day because you never know when you're going to lose them. Death is a part of life, as scary as it sounds, and it is really, really scary. We all can't live forever, but... We should cherish everyone we have in our lives, even the negative people. Everyone is here for a reason. Everyone in your life has a reason for being in it. And it's just so important to cherish everything that this world and this life has to offer because if we don't, you know, you're just going to have a life of regret. So tell your family you love them. Tell your best friends that you love them. Any chance you get, make sure you do it every day. Because you never know when it's all just going to disappear like that. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of The Igloo want to give a special shout out to all of our military on this Veterans Day. Thank you for your service to this country because if it wasn't for you, we wouldn't enjoy the freedoms that we have here today. 
So enjoy the Gavit games this week. I'll have a brand new episode coming out this Friday to preview all of this weekend's action. And there's some really good underrated games that are coming up and I'll have the preview on all of that as well as I'll, well as I will also review all of the Gavit games, all eight games that are going to happen starting tonight, going through Thursday. So until then, this is Timmy Ice signing off. Thanks for tuning in. I'll see you on Friday.